0: Psalm 139, Um, last week we were reminded by Ricky from Psalm 106 to praise our faithful God. And so the question was posed, does my desire, my passion for God surpass my desire or passion for other things? Another way for us to ask that might be, who or what is my number one priority and focus? And while these questions should be rhetorical, God should be my definitive number one priority and focus, leading my desire and passion for Him to surpass all things. We are all too well aware that God is often not our number one focus, leading us to desire other things more than Him. And I think David, as he writes Psalm 139, understands this crucial issue, We need to praise our faithful God. He needs to be number one. And Psalm 139 is a cure for small thoughts of God. The ultimate focus of Psalm 139 is on God Himself. On the God who is. David is reflecting on the character of God. And in his reflection, he exalts the crucial attributes of God. David highlights God's omnipresence. His omnipotence, His omniscience, and His holiness. It is who God is that comforts the psalmist. In understanding who God is, Psalm 139 leads us to shift our view off of ourselves and on to an almighty, holy God. Seeing His sovereign hand of grace in every aspect of our lives, leading us to praise our faithful God. So before we read and study from Psalm 139, uh, we're going to do something a little different to get us thinking about our faithful God and how we can praise Him faithfully and supremely. Um, This is from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It should be on the screen. Um, There's questions and answers. I'm going to read the questions, and if you would respond with the answers congregationally with me, Um, get us thinking in the direction that we're going with this psalm. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. What rule hath God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him? The Word of God, which is contained in the Scriptures of the Old and New Testament, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him. What do the Scriptures principally teach The scriptures principally teach that man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. What is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Are there more gods than one? There is but one only, the living and true God. How many persons are there in the Godhead? There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, and these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. What are the decrees of God? The decrees of God are His eternal purposes, according to the counsel of His will, whereby for His own glory, He hath ordained whatsoever comes to pass. How doth God execute His decrees? God executeth His decrees in the works of creation and providence. So as we seek to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, let's read from Psalm 139. O Lord, You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Let's pray. God, you are truly all-powerful, all-knowing, always present. You're holy and just. God, help us as we recognize you that you're not a God that's far off in these things, but you're a God who comes close to us. God, help your word to speak to us. Help your Holy Spirit to change us. That we would seek to glorify you in everything that we do, find joy in you, honor and praise you. It's in your name we pray, amen. As we read Psalm 139, as we read through that, you can't help but see that the ultimate focus of Psalm 139 is on God. It has been said by some that Psalm 139 is the pinnacle of the Psalter. It's this high peak giving us this Mount Everest view of God and who he is. And in this psalm, God's omnipresence is, his omnipotence, His omniscience, and His holiness are recognized, trusted, and praised. As we understand who God is, Psalm 139 leads us to shift our focus off of ourselves and, and refocus on Almighty God. A.W. Tozer writes, What comes to our mind when we think of God is the most important thing about us. So what we think about God and believe about God is truly the most important thing about us. And Psalm 139, as I stated earlier, is a cure for small thoughts of God. See, God's omnipotence, his omnipresence, his omniscience, his holiness are not simply to be recognized, but they're to be recognized, trusted, and praised. We serve and worship a holy, all-powerful God. We see these attributes of, God's, of God personally and intimately at work in our lives, giving us comfort and peace as we see his sovereign hand of grace in every aspect of our life. See, a wrong theology, a wrong belief about God, will always bring wrong doxology or wrong praise and worship. And so we need to ask ourselves two questions. Who is this almighty God that we are to glorify and enjoy forever? And how does this Almighty God intimately show us sovereign grace in every aspect of our lives? Believer, the Almighty God knows you, He protects you, He pursues you, He made you, and He leads you. And we're going to see how these play out throughout Psalm 139. First, the Almighty God knows you. Here we witness God's omniscience, recognized, trusted, and praised. So if you look at the first six verses of Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You've done, David is saying you've done a deep drive. So like you've gone to your computer, you've done a deep drive on, on a hard drive. And so he's saying, you know me. You know every little secret about me. You have intimate knowledge of me that nobody else knows. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You know the totality of my life from before I was born to when I die. You discern my thoughts from afar. You know the true meaning of my thoughts. So when I think something, you know exactly the motive behind my thoughts because you know me. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Whether I'm at work or at rest, you know my heart, and you know my heart struggles. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You know what I'm going to say before even I know what I'm going to say, and you know the intent behind it. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. This knowledge of God's intimate omniscience leaves the psalmist stunned, his mind is blown. Have you ever got a piece of information that was so shocking that you just couldn't wrap your head around it? And the psalmist here is saying this knowledge that God has of him, that he knows things about him that even he doesn't know, has him baffled and stunned. He can't do anything but believe and praise this holy God. David is not just amazed at the doctrine of God's omniscience and abstract that he knows that God knows everything. It's not just the reality of God's all-knowingness, but that God sees and knows him personally. What has gripped David is God's personal knowledge of him. God knew him exhaustively past, present, and future. And David was strengthened and reassured by the fact that no thought, no desire, no plan or purpose escape the eye of his heavenly Father. Believer, almighty God knows us intimately. He knows our hearts. He knows our fears. He knows our thoughts and motives. He knows our desires and frustrations. He knows our past, present, and future. He notices what's going on inside of us and around us. He understands us. In fact, God knows us better than we know ourselves. How many of you have ever been shocked by something and said, wow, I didn't see that coming? Maybe it was a movie or a book or just something in life and you're like, wow, I didn't see that. Not so with omniscient God. God will never say, wow, I didn't see that coming. God knows us personally and he knows things about our desires that even we don't know. That sounds unnerving, right? But we can rest assured That this God, who knows us, loves us. He loves us intimately. This fact should leave us perplexed, but full of praise. So when David says that God has laid his hand upon him, he's referring to an Old Testament practice of bestowing a blessing on someone. He's saying that God had blessed him. God has known us intimately and loved us and blessed us through His Son, Jesus. Psalm 1-6 says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. That is the way that's through Jesus. But the way of the wicked will perish. John 10, 27 and 28, Jesus saying, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. He knows us intimately, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. 1 Corinthians 8.3 But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. That intimate knowledge of loving God because God first loved us, that we can know God because He knows us intimately and He cares about us. Believer, that Almighty God knows us intimately and still love us ought to move us not only to comfort but to worship and praise and thanksgiving as we praise God for sending his son Jesus that we may know the intimate love of God. Not only does the Almighty God intimately know us, the Almighty God protects us. He protects you. Here we see, we witness God's omniscience and omnipotence recognized, trusted, and praised. So if you would focus in that section on verse number 5, he says, You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. God's omniscience and omnipotence with the aspect of protection is a great comfort to David, as it should be to every believer. David is saying that God completely surrounds him, he envelops him, God is a fence of protection about us and around us. He is on every side of us, protecting us and directing us. David had a lot to say about God's protection of him. Psalm 32, verse 7. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. 2 Samuel 2, 22, two through 2-4 David speaking, he said, "The Lord is my rock, my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies." Psalm 119:114: You are my hiding place and my shield." I hope in your word. And probably one of the most famous passages on his protection, Psalm 23. I think the whole whole section is up there. But I'm going to focus on two verses. The Lord is my shepherd. He provides protection and direction. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So even through trouble, even through doubt, God is with us, protecting us, guiding us, even in his discipline. See, we can find comfort in God's omnipotence when we are persecuted, when we're oppressed, when we're going through trials. We can find encouragement in God's omnipotence when we're tempted with sin and trials. And there's a special comfort and encouragement that we can find when we pray. Ephesians 3 talks about, it reassures us how God is able to do far exceedingly, far more abundantly than anything that we can ask or think. God gives us a chance to talk to Him and plead with Him to show His omnipotent power in our lives. God even protects us in unanswered prayers, prayers that we where he says no because the almighty omniscient god loves his children and does everything for our good and his glory paul says it like this in romans romans 8:31 what then shall we say to these things if god is for us who can be against us the almighty omniscient god is always protecting and directing us and just like david that fact should lead us to awe and praise. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. His mind is blown, but he doesn't doubt. He worships and trusts the Almighty God. Not only does the Almighty God intimately know us and protect us, the Almighty God pursues us. Here we witness God's omnipresence, recognized trusted and and praised, God is inescapable in his pursuit of us. We see this in verses seven, starting in verse seven through verse number twelve Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence he pre- He presents two rhetorical questions he says where where can i where shall I go from your spirit or where where shall I flee from your presence? And the answer is nowhere. There's nowhere I can go. And then David moves on to this other analogy. But if you think about it, where can I go? How many of you ever have you ever played hide-and-go-seek with a little kid? They hide out in the open. You can obviously see them, but they think they're hidden, right? You think of in the Bible, Adam and Eve hiding from God jonah trying to run from the presence of god god was still there with them so that when we try to hide from god we're just like little kids playing hide and go seek trying to hide from him and then david moves on to this other directional illustration in verse 8 he says if i ascend to heaven if i go up you are there if i make my bed in sheol That's an amazing statement what we're going to come back to. If I go down, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, if I go east or west, if I rise with the sun and I travel at the speed of light, or if I go to the remotest part of the ocean, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. God is always providing for us direction, guidance, guidance, Protection and security, because he's always with us. Then David moves to another illustration in verses 11 and 12. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as day, for the darkness is as light with you. Think back to when you're a kid, and kids in the room, when is the best time to play hide-and-go-seek? In the dark, right? Everyone wants to play hide-and-go-seek in the dark. And so, God is saying, when it's dark, so, or may- Maybe think about the illustration, we want to play hide-and-go-seek in the dark. Or maybe when you're a kid, you got in trouble, and you wanted to hide from that trouble. So you ran into your room, you hid under a blanket, you turned the lights off, you got in a closet. And so he's saying, well, I can't escape God directionally. There's nowhere I can go from God. But what if someone hides in the darkness? And his answer here is, there is no darkness with God. God is light. His spotlight is always on you. There is no hiding from God in the dark or under the covers. We cannot hide from God because God is inescapable in His pursuit of us. And if God's omnipresence in this matter frightens the wicked, those who are without Christ, it should console and comfort those who are righteous, who are found in Him. No matter what the trial we face, no matter what the circumstance, God is always with us. And God isn't just with us, believer. He is with us with our best in mind. God wants what's best for us. His protection and guidance is always lovingly in pursuit of us. Think back to Psalm 23, verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. He is beside us, working all things for our good. Jesus tells a parable in Luke, in Luke chapter 15, and verses 3 through 4. So he told them this parable, "'What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them?' does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. God is in pursuit of us. If God is looking for us, we are inescapable to him. Now back to that interesting statement in verse number 8. And David says something here in verse number 8 that is beyond his knowing. He says, if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. That's an amazing statement. Because in Hebrew theology, Sheol was a place where there is no praising of God. It's the end of days, it's nothingness, it's death, it's darkness. And the psalmist here says, even in Sheol, you are there. And I want you to think about that a little bit, because the glory of the gospel is that that verse is truth. We worship a God in Jesus Christ who can tell us what death is like and not just tell us what death is like, has defeated death so that we don't have to die. When we die, we have a hope that we will live with him forever. He has conquered death for us. We worship a God who is immortal and invisible and only wise. But he knows what death is like personally, and so the psalmist celebrates the personal presence of God. There is no place that we can go where God has not already been and is waiting for us to lead us to where we need to be. Paul reminds us of this truth in Romans chapter 8. He says, starting in verse 33, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, pleading for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Another rhetorical question. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquered through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither So instead of using the directional statements, he uses circumstances in life. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will separate us from the love of Christ Jesus our Lord. So not only does the Almighty God intimately know us and protect us and pursue us, The Almighty God made you. Here we witness God's omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence in human creation recognized, trusted, and praised. Just starting in verse 13, listen to the beauty of this personal and intimate account of God's hand in human creation. For you formed my inward parts... You knitted me together. This is the intricate beauty of a skilled craftsman. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. He's rehearsed these facts over and over. He's rehearsed the facts of God's wonderful works in his life. He's memorized them. He meditates on them. And that's why he can praise and be so thankful and just know them. He doesn't just, hasn't just read about them. He's rehearsed them, and they're precious to him. Verse number 15. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. God saw us and knew us before our parents ever saw us on the ultrasound screen. Intricately woven, that intricate beauty of a skilled craftsman making whatever it is that he makes, whether it's a clock or a painting or a book. We were intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance And your books were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. From before the foundation of the earth, you knew that I would be born, you knew what I would do, you knew the totality of my life before I was ever even a thought to my parents. And so what does he say? How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them? It leads the psalmist to praise. If I could count them, they are more than the sand in the sea. They are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Even in death, the believer is still with God. God knows the totality of our lives intimately from conception to death and He loves us which should elicit joy and praise. Think back to creation. Psalm, or Genesis 1, 26 through 28, uh, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. God made each of us intimately and intricately. He didn't just slap together us together with leftover pieces. Almighty God made each of us with the intricate beauty of a skilled craftsman, deliberately making each and every one of us. We are remarkably and wonderfully made. You're one of a kind. Right down to your thumbprint. Every one of us has a different thumbprint. Each life is a masterpiece created by Almighty God. Notice it's not just that He's the omni-creator, the creator of everything, but it's God is the creator of me. The psalmist is praising God is the creator of you, and so it's personal and intimate and beautiful. He made me, and He made you, and He knows things about me that I don't even know and can't know about me. And David says how precious is the thought of that and how precious to us this concept should be. The fact that Almighty God created me intricately and personally should leave each of us in in a place of praise of our omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent God. But just like a good infomercial, but wait, there's more. So not, not only does God create each of us intricately and personally, believer, He provided a way for us to be a new creation in and through Christ Jesus. He didn't just leave us at creation. He provided a way for us, new creation. 2 Corinthians five seventeen. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is passed away. Behold, the new has come. Ephesians 2.10 plays off of this psalm and it says, For we are His workmanship, we are His craftsmanship, His beautiful work, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand before the foundation of the world that we should walk in them. The fact that Almighty God knows us intimately protects us entirely pursues us inescapably, and made us intricately, should leave us baffled and in praise. Spurgeon says, Mount as I may, this truth is too lofty for my mind. It seems to be always above me, even when I soar into the loftiest regions of spiritual thought. Is it not so with every attribute of God? Can we attain to any idea of His power, His wisdom, His holiness? Our mind has no line with which to measure the infinite. Do we therefore question, say rather that we therefore believe and adore? We are not surprised that the most glorious God should in His knowledge be high above all the knowledge to which we can attain. It must of necessity be Be so, since we are such poor, limited beings. And when we stand a tiptoe, we cannot reach to the lowest step of the throne of the eternal. Paul says it like this in Romans chapter 11. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord... Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. We have seen God's omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, recognized, trusted, and praised here in Psalm 139. And we're left back to our questions. Who is this God? These attributes we've talked about. And what has he done? We have this knowledge of who God is. J.I. Packer poses this question. How can we turn our knowledge about God into knowledge of God? The rule for doing this is simple but demanding. It is that we turn each truth that we learn about God into matter for meditation before God leading to prayer and praise of God. See, David here in the psalm had witnessed God's omniscience, omnipotence, and omnipresence, and it leads him to praise and prayer and meditation. So not only does Almighty God intimately know, protect, pursue us, and make us, the Almighty God leads us. And here we witness God's holiness, recognized, trusted, and praised. The Almighty God who knows us intimately, protects us entirely, pursues us inescapably, and made us intricately is just and pure. Raise your hand if you went to VBS this week. Yeah, lots of hands. Can anyone say the motto from VBS? Does anyone remember the motto? Oh, I see some hands. Do anyone want to just shout it out loud? You can shout it out loud if you know it. Created. Yeah. God created us. God designed us. And God empowers us. And that same God empowered David. And he empowers us to pray like this. David's knowledge of God empowers him to pray this bold and precatory prayer to Almighty God. That leads to a bold in repentant prayer of intercession. In verse nineteen, O oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! O men of blood, depart from me! They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies.'" This is an imprecatory prayer. He's saying, you are the holy, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God. You know that I am for you. Why don't you just wipe out everyone who is against you? And while God calls David a man after his own heart, David had a lot of sin in his life. And each of us has a lot of sin in our life. And so David's imprecatory prayer quickly changes to one of intercession and the same should be true of us. How many of us, as we see wicked or something in this in the world, and what we view as righteous, our anger towards evil, by God's grace we realize that, wait, there, there's still that sin in me. And if I'm calling downfall on God's enemies, why do I think my end would be any different than theirs? if God is pleased to bring judgment on them. W- William Plummer writes, and I, this was so helpful to me, in our hatred of sin, we should carefully guard our guard against all malice, all private speak, all personal enmity, and abhor the character of the wicked only as they are abhorrent to God. Even our very condemnation of what is evil needs to be tested. Does it spring from the love of God? Does it spring from the hatred of sin? Does it spring from a personal attachment to holiness? From a desire not to countenance evil? Or does it spring from ostentation? From censorious feelings? From a hypocritical pretense? from a desire to please certain of our fellow creatures. And so David changes to a prayer of intercession. This pleading of David is that the Lord would do a remarkable saving and sanctifying work in his own heart. In verse 23, he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way of Everlasting. David says here, Lord, you are omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, and holy. I want you to come around me, come into my life, do that deep dive, of my, the hard drive of my life, and I want you to rummage around, sift through everything, and I want you to find what needs to be found there. And if there's any cause of grief in my life, Anything that causes you grief, I want you to root it out. Tear it out of my life. I want you to turn me around, repentance towards you. I want you to put me in the way that leads to life, this everlasting way. David's implying that the real us is found when we're under trials. This know my thoughts could also be translated my anxieties. So who we are in the hardest moments of life, what bubbles to the surface in our emotions and our thoughts, tells a lot about who we are and what we believe in. So when we're going through trials and struggles, and we're being pressed, what squeezes out of our heart, those anxieties, those anxieties are an indicator of things that we care about. The things that we care about are the things that we worry about and the things that stress us. And he says, Lord, as you come and begin to test, bring tests and trials in my life, I want those anxieties to be known because those anxieties are clues. And what are those thoughts and anxieties clues of? They're clues of what we really care about. We may say they're clues to the idolatries that are in our heart. The things that we're really serving, our goals, the things that we're serving in our life, more than God. Am I desiring power, comfort, approval, security more than I desire you in your perfect way? And God knows that we do, and God knows when we do, but He loves us, and like the psalmist says, lead me in the way everlasting. If we go back to Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Blessed is that man who walks in the everlasting way. At the end of that chapter, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. O may we pray like David, lead me in the way everlasting. The way that leads to everlasting life, the way that leads to eternal peace and rest, pleasures forevermore in Christ, in in opposition to the way that leads to grief and sorrow, sin and death. The way everlasting points us to who? It points us to Christ, the true and only way to eternal life. Jesus is the only one of us who can stand, be tested and tried and searched out by God and not found wanting, which is why he is for us the everlasting way. Jesus said in Matthew 7, chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. In John fourteen six. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. May our knowledge of God be changed into knowledge of God. May we recognize, trust, and praise you, almighty God. May we be found in Christ, in Christ alone, who is our everlasting way to you, almighty God. May we seek to glorify you and enjoy you forever. Believer, the almighty God knows you intimately. He protects you entirely. He pursues you inescapably. He made you intricately, and he leads you faithfully in Jesus Christ, to the way everlasting. Let's pray.